The subject of worship is probably in the top 10 list of topics that uh, are preached about at various of our meetings, and I think that's uh, of good reason, because it's very important. We need to uh, revisit some of these topics, such as worship, often to remind the older and to teach the younger. Joel 1 and 3 says, tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. So it's incumbent upon us to keep this process going. So I hope that uh, some of you, more mature in Christ, might be reminded of something tonight or this afternoon. And some of you that are maybe younger, hopefully, will maybe learn something for the first time. The word worship comes from two Old English words. Right? That's uh, worth, the Old English. Worth, and the other word is ship, which means shape or in the quality of. So worship means having the quality of worth. Worship should be given then to someone who has the highest quality of worth. And of course, then it's important that we know who that is. The first commandment given by God, says, I am the Lord your God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. God claims in his first commandment that he is the only one that is worthy of our worship. No other gods before him. But that's his claim. Is he? Is he the only one that's worthy of our worship? And of course, we could spend the rest of the afternoon doing a study on proving that he is indeed the only thing worthy of our worship. And I want to just uh, start with two things. There's a huge list that we could uh, come up with on why God is worthy of our worship. But to me, there's always two that go clear up to the top of the list. Actually, Glenn mentioned both of them in in his prayer. And uh, there's many verses we could go to to talk about the two reasons why He is the only one and the one of high worthy for us to be able to uh, worship him. I'm only going to go to two verses, though, to to prove this. And they're both in the Revelation. So if you want to, you can turn with me. You don't have to. I'll read them for you. Revelation 4.11 is the the first one. And I think we could stop with just this one alone right here. And and that would be be enough to prove that that God is the one that's uh, worthy of our worship. Revelation 4.11 says... It's very straight to the point. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, worship, because you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Why are we even here? We're here because our Creator created us. Why did He create us? Because He wanted worship. The reason we're here is because we were created by him. We don't understand even that, fathom that kind of a a power. That he created us, and what should we do? We owe everything to him, so we give everything back. Revelations 5.12, a chapter later, to me is another reason, just as important. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. To receive worship. 
the Lord who was slain to receive worship. He created us. We disobeyed him. We fell. But he still then decided to redeem us, to buy us back with his, with his son. These two reasons far and above, and we could, do, we could list lots. We could just go around and everybody could list reasons why he's worthy of our worship. And we'd have a lot of really good reasons. But I think these two reasons, that he created us and that he redeemed us through his son, are far and above more than enough than we need to give everything we have back to him in worship. God initiated worship by revealing himself to us in that he created all things and he sacrificed his son to save us. Worship then should be our response. As we grow more mature, the more we grasp his love and his character, the more we understand his worthiness, the better we declare his worth, the better we should become at worshiping him. So as John 4.23 states, God is the one who receives the worship, and he is seeking true worshipers. So God is on the receiving end of worship, and we are on the giving end. And that is an important dynamic to understand. God is on the receiving end. We are on the giving end of worship. Sometimes I think we feel like we should be somewhere on the receiving end of some of this. We should be getting something in return or something out of this. Someone might have said, you might have heard someone say, you might have heard these words come from your own mouth. I will admit I've been guilty at times. That worship was boring. That worship was boring. And I don't want to be too harsh on it, so I'm going to come back to this a little bit later in the talk. But this attitude, though, is based on what I think I should be receiving rather than what God is receiving. Right? It's what, what I felt I should have got out of it. It reminds me of a conversation I had just a little while ago from a woman in the church that said the reason that all her children are not in the church is because the church is full of hypocrites. I don't know if you've ever heard that. That excuse really gets me every time I hear that. You hear that a lot. I'm always just wondering, like, so you're telling me that, that is, that's the reason that they're going to offer when the Lord says, how come you're not part of my kingdom they're literally going to offer because your kingdom is full of hypocrites. And we expect Jesus to say, oh, yeah, you're right. Come on in. This is not a good excuse. And it reminds me of the same statement of this worship was boring. I always want to say, you know, in math, we have this thing called the transitive property of equality. If A equals B and B equals C, then A should equal C, right? It's kind of a logical uh, idea that we have in math. If the church is full of hypocrites and you say you're part of the church, then your children are telling you that you're a hypocrite. Is that what that argument was about? If the church worship is boring and you say you're part of the church, why did you offer something boring to God? Why are you boring? Some of these times we, we make out these arguments about how our, we are, we're running in our feelings, and sometimes we don't think about the logic behind what we just called ourselves, and we need to. So worship is what we give, 
not what we receive. Worship is not a time for you to come away with something. You don't come here to come away with something. You come here to give something. You come here to offer something to your God. That's what worship is. Worship has always been and will always be a sacrifice. You are offering. You are giving a sacrifice. In Genesis 4, Cain and Abel brought an offering, a sacrifice to the Lord. In Genesis 8 and 20, Noah offered every clean animal and every clean bird to the Lord. That literally meant every in the whole world. Right? When they came off the ark, I always thought that'd be kind of maybe a funny comic strip. The animals coming off the ark and saying, well, we're so lucky we got on that ark. And then Noah grabs them. And they were all sacrificed just to, just to be saved. And then they were all sacrificed. In Job 1, Job would offer sacrifices for his children. In 1 Samuel 1 and 3, Elkanah went up from his from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. There, the words worship and sacrifice are used together in the same, as the same idea. In biblical research, there's a principle called the law of first mention. I like how people make things sound really scientific. The law of first mention. And all that is, is, is it's the principle that requires one to go to that portion of the scripture where a doctrine is mentioned for the first time, and to study the first occurrence in order to get the fundamental inherent meaning of that doctrine. So basically what we're saying is, where in the Bible does it first mention worship? Because we might be able to learn a lot from that particular location. That's the law of first mention. Anybody happen to know? When is the first time that the word worship is mentioned? You can go ahead and guess if you want. No, it's way before that. Abraham, when he was doing what? When he goes to offer Isaac, right? Genesis uh, chapter 22, and I was going to read a lot of this because this is just a phenomenal story, really, about worship, but I'm going to, I don't know how long I'm going to go, so I'm going to just skip it. But I'm going to go to Genesis 22 and 5, where the word actually is mentioned. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. Now we know the story here with, with God asking him to offer his, his, his son. Take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. That's what God asked. That's what God said. I, I, I love that phrasing of that. Take your son. Your only son, the son you love, and take him and, wor- and worship to me and offer him as a sacrifice. And what did Abraham do? He left early in the morning. He got up and he did it. Because he's God and he's worthy of anything he asks of me, I will not hold anything back from giving it to him, even if it's my only son. Now, I think this story tells us a lot about what worship should be to us. Sometimes I'm not sure it is. It needs to be to us. It's giving your best. It's not questioning God. It's giving back to him because he's worthy and he has asked for it. That's why we do it. And it can be difficult sometimes. Sometimes it can be difficult to sacrifice things that I want to do. 
to come to the house of the Lord and to worship, worship God. But I need to. This is what God desires of us. And we see how good and worthy God is in this story. Did Abraham have to go through with it? No. Did God go through with it? Yes. This is a perfect parallel of God and his son. God wanted to show Abraham what he was going to have to endure, what God was going to have to do, and prove to everyone with this history that we read in the Bible that he is indeed worthy of worship. So worship is about pleasing God. It is not about pleasing ourselves. And I think this might be brought out in the 30th chapter of Exodus. We read about some specifics of the Old Testament worship. And God gives a formula to the incense that should be offered to him in the tabernacle. And I'm going to skip down to probably 30, verse 37 so I don't have to pronounce the four uh, spices that were supposed to be put together in equal measures for the, for the incense. But in verse 37 it says, But as for the incense which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be, you, it shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. It's really interesting there, I think. God is, is proclaiming very early on that the worship is for him. It is for him. Don't come to the worship thinking about what I'm going to get or if this is pleasing to me. We need to be going to the worship making sure it's pleasing to God and giving it to God. The premier text on understanding worship comes from Jesus himself. We go to the fourth chapter of John. If you'd like to turn there, that's where we're pretty much what we're going to talk about the rest of the time. In the fourth chapter of John, John is, or, uh, Jesus is speaking to the Samaritan woman. And we're going to skip most of the, it's, it's a really great conversation, the whole part is, but we're going to skip uh, most of the first half. But to set up the, uh, this conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, we remember that the Assyrians took over Israel and the city of Samaria. They took them in captivity in 622 B.C. And some of the Jews were allowed to stay, and some of them intermarried with the Assyrians, and therefore, as whenever that happened in the Old Testament, they intermingled their cultures, their religions. And the Jewish religion then was uh, uh, polluted. There was, they were worshiping some other gods and uh, doing things that they weren't commanded uh, to do. So at this time, when Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, they, the Jews worshiped in the temple that was on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. The Samaritans were worshiping a different temple in Mount Gerizim. And that makes sense when, when we read about some of the conversation here. But I'm going to start in, uh, I think, the 19th verse, John chapter 4, to hear what Jesus says about worship. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do, what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is. And now is, which means that we are under that dispensation that Jesus is talking about here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit 
and in truth. I pay attention when Jesus says things once. I really pay attention when Jesus says things twice. The worship that we are supposed to be offering him should be in two things. In spirit. Spirit. And in truth. And I think it's, if we want to understand worship, we need to understand what both of those two, two mean. What does it mean to worship in spirit? And what does it mean to worship in truth? I don't believe that worshiping in spirit is that hard to understand. Sometimes when we talk about the Holy Spirit, it can get confusing. We talk about things. I don't think this should be that complicated. I believe that worshiping in spirit refers to worship that emanates from the spirit of man. The spirit that's within you. The spirit that was given to you. Paul said in Romans 1 and 9, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son. So when it says there in verse 24, God is spirit. The true worshiper will worship God with that part of himself that was created or made in the image of God. We were created and made in the image of God. The animals were not. So what's the difference? Well, we were given a spirit that was in the image of the Holy Spirit, in the image of God's spirit. Solomon asked in Ecclesiastes, who knows if the human spirit rises upward and the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth? Well, we do, don't we? We do know. Sometimes we get confused. We need to be careful when we're reading Ecclesiastes or Job because a lot of those books are about the inner dialogue of a man and God and how to figure things out. And sometimes we look at some of these verses and we think, oh, that's that's Scripture. Well, it is Scripture, but we need to go to the end of Ecclesiastes when Solomon finally figures it out, right, and figures out the conclusion of the whole matter. At this point in Solomon's life, I don't think think he was debating about things with with God. I think it's very evident. I think a small child could go to a farm or to a zoo and observe animals just for a little while and realize that they are a fundamental different creature than man. We are fundamentally different from them, and it doesn't take long at all to figure that out, even even for a small child. We were given a spirit that was created in the image of of God. It's a spirit that allows us to discern. It allows us to consider, to contemplate, and most importantly for today's lesson, to worship. To understand how to worship our creator. You will never find an animal worshiping his creator. Maybe I would have to tell them how to worship me. If my pet, I have to tell them how to worship me. Are they worshiping? Are they discerning? Or are they just doing what the flesh has taught them to do because I will do this because I'm going to get a treat? This, there's a fundamental difference between animals and man. And I'm really tired of the world saying that there's not. When it's so obvious, right in front, very, the very nature of animals can tell us, can tell us this. Our spirit goes against what? What what is the opposite in the the Old Testament? If I said, if we played the opposite game, I say spirit, you would say what? 
flesh, right? This is constantly the, the battle in, in the Bible. So what's the difference? Well, our spirit fights against our flesh, right? Our spirit was, was created after the image of God, and so it knows, it can discern that what my flesh is wanting isn't correct. It's not correct, so it fights, and it has contention against each other. The spirit of animals do not do that. The spirit of animal isn't aligned with, the, with their flesh. Their spirit, they do the same things. We have a spirit that's different. It's a spirit of man that's in, that is created by the spirit of God, in the honor of God, in the image of God. And it fights against the flesh. Galatians 5.17, For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. You are not to do whatever you want. That is supposed to be happening in your lives. I want to do this. I'm not supposed to do that. Your spirit has been given to you. That's what's, that's what's telling you to not do this. The world tells you you're all just animals. Let your spirit and your flesh align. Let it do, do whatever you want. That is the difference between the world and what it means to be worshiping in the spirit. The Old Testament, was very, the Old Testament worship was very fleshly and physical. This is the way it originally was set up. But it was all a foreshadowing of what Jesus says about worshiping in the Spirit. If you remember the uh, tabernacle, when you went in the, the, the uh, tapestries, when you went in the front and you were trying to go all the way to God, and where was God represented in the tabernacle? In the Holy of Holy and the Ark of the Covenant, right? You're trying to get to God. You're going to come all the way in here to the to the Ark of the Covenant. When you came through the outer courtyard, the first thing you had was there was an altar here where you offered sacrifice to be able to go in. You had a, a basin of water here. The priests had to wash themselves. They had to be washed before they could enter the, the holy part. And if you came all the way in right before God, right before the Ark of the Covenant, we had the altar of incense. Incense was continually being offered up before God. And we, know, we read in Revelation that that is symbolic of our prayers being offered up Always, always to God. On the left side over here, we have the lampstand that produced the light. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And the word of God is a lamp into our path, right? A light into our feet. And so we have this representing the word of God. And over here on the right side, we have what? We have the showbread, right? The, the table, the presence, the uh, table of presence where we had 12 uh, loaves of bread and the priest ate them how many times a week? Once a week. Once a week, and they were, new, new bread was put out there. On the Sabbath day, the holy day, the priest ate, ate of that bread. And, of course, we have the Lord's table. We have the, we have the prayers being offered. We have the word of God. We have an Old Testament worship pointing to what we do today, what Jesus is talking about in John chapter 4. Go read Hebrews 9 sometime today. I was going to do that. I'm going to let you do that. It's, the, it's one of my favorite. Hebrews 9, the first 14 verses, and whoever the writer is says, well, we can't talk about these things anymore, right? They don't have these things anymore. They were, ta they were physically taken away, I think, on purpose, physically taken away so that we could understand the new covenant. We couldn't do those things anymore. They were taken away from us. We can't do those, so we have a better, a more spiritual 
uh, type of worship that we can do when we're worshiping in the Spirit. The tabernacle and the physical items of worship replaced, were replaced with the church and the spiritual items of worship. Physical circumcision was replaced with spiritual circumcision of the heart. Physical sacrifices of bulls, sheep, and goats were replaced with spiritual sacrifices. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God. Let us continue. Let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name and do not forget to do good and to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Hebrews 13, 15 through 16. Psalm 107, 21 through 22. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for mankind. Let them sacrifice thank offerings and tell of his works with songs of joy. So when Jesus says worship in the spirit, he is not saying that worship is no longer sacrifice. He is saying that it's no longer a physical sacrifice, but a spiritual one. It's a sacrifice that the spirit makes. The spirit, the flesh might want to do other things. The spirit says, I am going to the house of the Lord to worship my God. That is worshiping in the spirit. Romans 12, 1, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. I want to go back to the worship is boring comment just a little bit. I didn't want us all to feel bad that we've said that because I know I have too. I've had issues with that in, in my life too. And the focus, although the focus should not be about what we're getting out of it, but what we're, what we're offering to God, there should be some concern, I think. And maybe that's what we're saying when we say that the worship is boring. There should be some concern that our worship, that our offering is pleasing to God. There should be some concern about that. Are we just going through the motions? When we wake up on Sunday morning and we come to church, are we just going through the motions? Are we actually, as Abraham would tell us, to give our best? God is so much more worthy than what I think sometimes we offer him. We need to look at this and we need to be careful about this. Because God is not pleased if we don't offer him our best. If we don't come here with the attitude that we want to sacrifice and worship and, and praise and give adoration to him, then he's not going to be pleased with that. Malachi 1.10, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. Isaiah 29 and 13, the Lord says, These people come near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. We need to consider that. Are we just going through the motions? I think we can do better sometimes. I know I can do better sometimes at worshiping in the Spirit. Worshiping in the Spirit. Preparing. Have you ever thought about this? Preparing for your worship? Did they have to prepare for their worship in the Old Testament? Are you thankful that we don't have to do that? Think of the preparation that, it, that went into preparing for that, that worship. Do we do the same thing? 
Now, I think if I'm up here giving a talk, I have prepared. Do I always prepare for everything that I'm on the schedule to do? I was talking with a fellow teacher of mine about their uh, denomination, and it's a denomination. There's a lot of other denominations you hear this, and he was talking about the worship leader, and I was asking about that and what that entailed, and what I finally figured out after a long conversation was it was the song leader. It's what we'd call the song leader. You know, I kind of like that, the worship leader. I'm, I'm convinced as I've gotten, and I, I'm not very old, but in my experience, you know, if, if I'm going to affect the worship that we're going to offer to God, and I'm on the schedule to help, help do this, I can do better, I think, if I'm the song leader than, I, than if I'm the speaker. And I, I think, and I don't want to judge other people, but I think a lot of people could do better when they're being the song leader as when they're the speaker. Revive us again. That's the song we sang right before I came up here. That helped. That helped. It really did help. We were standing up, too. We could really sing it out. So, but do we put that as much preparation into our song leading? And do we, do we have a theme for our songs? Have we, have we practiced them through? Do we know what we're going to do? do? Are we going to have, you know, the women sing out here, and then we're going to be quiet here? Do we, do, we do, do we put effort into those things? What about our prayers? Do we really put effort into our praying? I, you know, I always used to think, boy, you, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't go up there and have your prayer written down. You know what? We should come up with our prayers written down. The best prayers, the most inspirational, inspirational prayers, the most worshipful prayers I've ever heard were someone that had prepared at home what they wanted to say when they were going to talk to God on behalf of the body of Christ. What a responsibility. And they took it seriously. And they wrote it out. And it was beautiful. And you know what made it the most beautiful? Was the fact that I could see that they had wrote it out. That was actually what was most important to me. That they had prepared. They were at home and they thought about this before they came to offer the worship. I think we could do that better. I know I could do that better. And I think we need to consider those things so that our worship is pleasing to the Lord. I'm not really concerned about what we're getting out of it. We need to hope that God is getting something out of it and God is pleased with what you've offered him, that what you have come to the house of the Lord and decided to give to him. What does it mean to worship in the truth? This one's a little easier to understand. John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We know what truth is. Truth is the word of God. And so we need to worship in the truth, which means we need to worship according to the word of God and according to what God has told us, the worship that he wants to receive. What does he want to receive? And we need to know what that is. We need to study the word of God and see what is it, what is the proper method and the proper things that we need to be doing to offer, offer to God. In the book of Hebrews, and this goes back to uh, Exodus, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown on the mountain. That phrase is used over and over again. God said, here's a pattern. I want everything done exactly this way. That was the Old Testament worship. But I don't think it was just for that. I think it was for us now. Do what God has asked. Don't make assumptions of things that God has not asked for and think, well, he'll probably like this. Just give him what he has asked for. It's simple. When God says, this is how I want you to worship me, then we do that. 
and we do that alone. Why did God reject Cain's worship? Go ahead. Is what? Disobeyed? It wasn't God. How do we know it wasn't what God asked for? Right, we go to Hebrews and we know that Abel offered his by faith. So we make an assumption, which is a good assumption, that Cain did not. That, that, that Abel's was accepted because he offered it by faith. And Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by what? Hearing the word of God. The word of God is truth. This is what Abel's sacrifice was, was based upon. It was based upon faith. We know that they had been told what to worship. And so we assume... And I, I assume also, and I, I, go, I, I, I go with the majority on this particular thing, that I think that Cain's problem was that he was not worshiping in truth. He was not worshiping in, what, in, in the word of God that had come to him, that told him exactly what he wanted. I don't know that for sure. I don't want to say that out, that that is the, the obvious thing. Because later on, we do have sacrifices that were grain offerings and some things like this, and and I don't know that God didn't say that he couldn't offer the best of his production. It's possible that he could, could have done that. I don't know. I don't think so. I think that he probably should have given some of his best produce to his brother Abel and got the lamb from his brother Abel and offered that. I think that was probably the, the, what God had required uh, from them. I think that's, that's what the case is. But we do know whether or not he was worshiping in truth. Maybe he was worshiping in truth, and it was okay what he gave. But we do know what? He was not worshiping in the Spirit. He was not worshiping in the Spirit. That is made clear time and time again. In Genesis 4-7, God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. There was no way that Cain was worshiping in the spirit at all. If he wasn't worshiping in the truth, which I tend to think he probably wasn't, he probably shouldn't have been offering what he offered. If he wasn't worshiping in the truth, then he clearly was not worshiping in the spirit anyway. If you're not worshiping in the truth, it's hard to say that you could be worshiping in the spirit. There might be a couple of exceptions to that. If we look at Paul and Apollos, I might be able to argue that they were worshiping in the spirit. They were very zealous for God, but they were not worshiping in the truth. They needed to be corrected for what their thinking was, and then once that was corrected, then they could be worshiping in the truth and in, and in the Spirit. But generally, I think that, if, that if, if we're not worshiping in the truth, we're clearly not worshiping in the Spirit. And I think most times, we're probably worshiping in the truth and not worshiping in the Spirit. We might know what God wants. We might be trying to give what God wants, but we're just giving it half-heartedly. We're not really worshiping in the spirit like we should. We need to be doing both. We need to be worshiping in the spirit and in the truth. Leviticus 10, 1 through 2 is a story about Nadab and Abihu. They were the sons of Aaron, took, took either of them his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. And there went out from fi fire from the Lord and devoured them and they died before the Lord. I believe they were not worshiping in the truth. I think it probably goes back to the incense uh, scripture that we looked at earlier. I don't know for sure, but I think they probably 
they had a different recipe that they might have used, possibly. It could be one of, uh, one of the explanations. I've heard other explanations, and, and so I just like that one the best. So I don't know if that one's right or, or not. But, I, but clearly they were not worshiping the truth because they did it based on what God had not commanded them to do. So they were not worshiping in the truth um, at all. I like instrumental music. I really do. I played, I had piano lessons for ever. I just never learned how to play it. I just kept going to piano <laughs> lessons all the time. Four things all at once. It's too much for my mind. I played the saxophone all the way through high school in band, jazz band, all kinds. Of, I, I liked it. And I'll, I'll, I'll even go a step further. I believe you can actually play an instrument from the heart with feeling. Enough to almost make you cry while you're playing it. I believe that. I believe that you can do that with feeling. But God never in his word, in his truth, told me that he likes it as much as I do. He just didn't. What did he tell me in his truth? He told me in Hebrews 2.12, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church will I sing praise unto thee. He told me in 1 Corinthians 14, 15, I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also. He told me in Colossians 3, 16, Let the word of Christ, the truth, dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Worshiping in the truth is worshiping according to God's wishes, not our own. It's important. What does God want? It has nothing to do with what we want. Remember from the beginning, God is the, on the receiving end. We are on the giving end. And we do, we worship him, we give him what he asked us to. And we don't try to guess what he might like, what, what I think I like, that surely he'll like this too, because I like it. It's just, we just don't do it. We can do it in our private lives, but we can't do it in the, in the body of the saints, in the worship service. One more point I'd like to mention before I close here, because sometimes you hear this a lot. It's like, you know, I can worship anywhere I want. I don't have to go to the assembly. I can worship any time. And, and part of that's true. You can worship personally anywhere at any time by yourself. That's great, and you should be. You should be every day. You should have a daily worship with your God. Your life should be a living sacrifice, a worship, a constant worship to God. But we read in Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 the following. You all know this, but we're going to read it. We need to, understand, we need to listen to these words. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more... As you see the day approaching. How do we partake of communion without communing with each other? How do we do that? How do we teach and admonish one another with spiritual songs? How do we do that if we don't come together? How do I teach you and you teach me and we sing Revive Us Again together and we we provoke each other? How do we do that if we don't come together? How do we exhort one another and provoke one another to love and good works without assembling together? This is required. This is required for us to come together on the first day of the week especially to remember the Lord's death, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. 
To worship as Jesus commanded in the spirit and in the truth, we not only spend time in our individual praise and worship of God, but we should also never neglect and forsake the assembling of the body of Christ. Let's never forget that. That's very important. I am greatly encouraged today. I look out on you, and you made a sacrifice, a Saturday sacrifice, not even a Sunday sacrifice. Some of you sacrifice things to come here. I'm sure some of you have work to do at home. I have work to do at home. My wife's list is still, like, super long. Some of you might have had baseball games. That's a hard thing to sacrifice. Sacrifice baseball games to go to the house of the Lord to worship. I enjoy those things. It's hard to make those sacrifices. But that's what worshiping in the spirit and in the truth is. You have made those sacrifices today, and I'm encouraged by it, that you're here. It'd be really depressing if I was up here and there was only one or two of you here. I really appreciate those one or two of you. But it's nice to see people that are here that we can share the gospel, share the gospel with. You made a choice to spend your time here today, and that is encouraging, and, and, and it's good to God. God appreciates that. This last week, I came across an email exchange that I had had with uh, uh, Brother Tom Woody, and I was reminded of the verse that he always put under his signature on each email, and I thought it was very appropriate to end this lesson with. Psalm 27.4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let us continually strive to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth.